you know, like data is money now. Data is a new oil. That's the that's the quote. University by and large don't have the large data set because they're not in the business of collecting large data set. But to some degree, they do. But the key is the people. Welcome to Science Town, a podcast about the most unique research community on the planet. With every episode, we will bring you cutting-edge tech, science, and startup culture through the eyes of pioneering men and women. Their journeys cross disciplines and cross borders in the pursuit of world-changing science. Hello, I'm Nicholas DeMille. And I'm Ben Stevens. Welcome to Episode 6 of Science Town. Computers are a ubiquitous part of life for more than half of humanity, as is the internet that links us all together. Now, it's a relatively small population of researchers, nerds, and enthusiasts that are responsible for the development of this infrastructure. And as artificial intelligence and machine learning make their way into realms of popular culture, we decided to ask the experts where these terms originated and what they mean for the future of humanity. In this episode, we dig into extreme computing and try to separate tech optimism from tech impact as we explore this new age of artificial intelligence. If you look at the, the real people who have advanced the field from even 40 years ago, look at the, uh, the recent Turing Award. The Turing Award is the Nobel Prize of Computer Science. Uh, the most recent one was given to AI, machine learning in particular. There were, there were three people. All three of them are from universities. That's KAUS president Tony Chan. All three of them, though, have partial appointment now with companies. So in that sense, then, is it, do you think, more important in AI for there to be industry input yes. and even collaboration? Yes, very much so. Uh, one is, as I explained, you know, the, the industry... And the university, so they play complementary roles. So university produces the talents, and it's not as simple as taking what they learn at the university and then just apply, because this thing is evolving so fast. They, these are talented people. They were inspired. They had some basic, and they go and look at the problem, and they invent new things as they go along. So that's the role of the university. Uh, they have the technical expertise to, to be able to interpret many of the new ideas coming from university. Most of them don't work for a particular problem, but they have the expertise to at least judge. They can go to the conferences and find out what's going on, right? But the, but the industry has several things that are indispensable. One is they have the data because that's their business, okay? Second is that they have the motivation. They, it's part of their business. They want to be, you know, Google wants to be better than Amazon. Alibaba is competing with Amazon, right? So they, they sort of have a drive to do that, and they want to hire the talent. There's a phenomenon going on because there's so much demand for these talents because the, 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 the potential impact is so big. There's so much uh, investor interest in, you know, it's going to be so disruptive that the companies is willing to spend tremendously to get the talent. They're competing for the talent so they go to universities and just recruit all the top people. By the way, this is from professors to students. 
and I mean, is it almost legendary that they pay? You know, I approach a professor. I say, I pay you three times as much. Well, I, I maybe I give you stocks. Uh, you don't have to teach students, you know, and and so on. So many are tempted. So in fact, there's places, top places, where, you know, the whole fraction of part of the department being recruited are higher by, by industry. So for example, the famous case is uh, Carnegie Mellon University, one of the top places in computer science. In fact, in in AI, Uber, you know, set up in Pittsburgh. That's where they are. So they just hire like I don't know 50 people from their robotics lab. In the university and other places complain. They say, hey, if you do this, you're you're cutting off your seed coin, right? <laughs> Who's going to train the next generation? So in fact, they are now worried. Even the company, so they, I don't know what they're doing. They may be setting up like these joint appointments. So you can consult with the university, but you still have a foot in there. You can have graduate students in the university, and they can be intern or whatever working at the university. So it, it uh, creates a new kind of Academics, you know, industry people collaboration—it's it's a new thing. So, university, especially the administration, uh, have to adapt to this. See, before some universities say you are either with the university or you are not. You cannot be have a foot in both camp. Well, if they do that, they may not. The university may not get to keep the talent. So, it is a brave new world here. So we are making a, uh, we're launching an initiative in AI. So this is sort of part of my initiative after I come in. The reasoning I had was, first of all, it's a global trend. If you look at cows' traditional areas of emphasis, right, you know, energy, food, water, and environment, those are important. But if you look at that, uh, in the next, going the next decade or two, you, you you have to be invested in this area. Okay, first of all, it's important technology. Okay, so you, you need to be invested in that. Second is, it underlies the other area of research excellence. AI is being used in all of the energy and you know and so on and so forth. But so, what do we do in AI? We cannot uh, compete head on, let's say, with the Googles and Amazons of the world. Because they have a lot more resources. I don't mean just money. I mean, they have the data, you know, com- commercial data. You know, they, they, every time you use, a, you know, Gmail or Google search, you know, they have your data, right? But we are not in that business. So we cannot compete with them. So we are now actually, uh, right now, you know, focusing on training talents, also finding some area where we are good at. So, for example, uh, what about using AI and machine learning in science itself? You know, we're here, we are science, University of Science and Technology. You know, we... There are a lot of challenging problems in this area. How to design new material. You know, how to apply AI to look at genomic data so to, to help uh, healthcare. Okay, so there, there are many examples like that. So that's an, a direction that, you know, we, it's built on our strength and our niche. Okay, so then we have a better chance to, to make a, a dent, to make a contribution and to lead in, in the world. So... Another direction is, uh, you know, cows, we have a very uh, sustained uh, model for research funding. 
you know, our faculty are uh, sort of guarantee funding in a in a in you know on an annual basis. You don't have to go, you know, say in a in the U.S. every year. You know, I had to write for three or four grants to keep my group going. Here, you sort of have a very stable, we call baseline funding. So, the the idea is not just about the amount of money. The idea is that if you have this sustained funding, you can take more risk, right? You can invest in a little bit more riskier, longer term problem. And again, the history of science is full of things like, you know, you, it's not just, you know, getting the next paper out in the next three months. It's really investing in the next three years so that you have a way of being disruptive yourself. How on earth, if it's such a fast-moving field, do you prepare young people for the challenges and you for cannot. the jobs? You, you cannot. So yeah. this is a very good question. Nobody knows what's even in two years, what the new frontier from a technical basis. We cannot predict, but there are certain basic things you know you need, okay? So I don't have to articulate them. You, you know, algorithm model, you know, is math and physics and, you know, uh, uh, signal processing, you know, all, all, all that. You, so in university, you should learn the basic, okay? And most importantly, it's you, you need to know what are the new avenues or possibilities. That's what universities are there for. To, to try different things. They may seem crazy. Many of them, in fact, nine out of ten will not lead to anything practically useful. It doesn't mean they're not useful. By the way, I, I distinguish that. So it's, you know, it's the history of science and technology is full of things that at first you don't think they they are useful, but a hundred years later they will be useful. But then even if they never turn out to be useful, it's useful because you know that avenue does not work. It's you know it's part of the trial and error process. So you, you need to have uh, a pool of ideas and people. So the, the notion is not, we know exactly what, the, what, what this AI thing is. We know what it's going to be in 10 years. Let's get to train all our people so they're ready to do this. No, that's the wrong idea. The idea is we don't know what it's going to be. We know it's going to be disruptive and important. Let's get a bunch of talented people Expose them to some of these ideas. Make sure they understand the the basic, you know, uh, technology, you know, the the math and and so on. Make sure they interact with the problems. So many of them come from industry. They could invent their own problem. You know, most of these things they come from young people. You know, the 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 customers, so to speak, for the technology are often the young people. So they would be in a better position than the senior people. So. That's what it is. So you get these people in there, get them exposed, get them try the hand with the universities, you know, do some intern at the, at, the, at the companies, and then they will go out and conquer the world. That's really the new model. Science Town, brought to you by Kaust. So artificial intelligence goes back to the original work of Alan Turing, who put the theoretical foundations for the concept of computation. That's Mutaz El-Nozihi, Dean of the Computer, Electrical, and Mathematical Science and Engineering Division at KAUST. And he wrote a very famous paper at the time he was predicting that at some point it may well be possible that we will produce a machine that can mimic humans in the way they think. And I think that influential paper created sort of a 
the notion that one can simulate intelligence by a computer. In 1958, several researchers came up with um, the idea that programming language could actually be designed to facilitate artificial intelligence. And they generated the language, but it really didn't make really the kind of breakthrough that they had in mind. Then by the 80s, there was a lot of hype about the progress that was made in making machines reason through expert systems and search algorithms. And that created a lot of predictions that artificial intelligence was about to take off and new algorithms will make things, you know, that were not possible before. And there was a particular language that was invented at the time, it was Prologue, and it was actually uh, part of uh, the uh, anxiety that, that was created in the United States about the superiority of the Japanese. Uh, there were articles about how Japan was going to take over the world in artificial intelligence and, and how they have cornered Prologue while the programmers in the West are so tied to the legacy programming languages and they cannot really think in the new wave. And it was a, it was a marvelous debate. And then this was followed by what people call the AI winter. Whenever you have these cycles of hype, they end up crashing in many ways. Uh, so the AI winter uh, started in the 1990s when people realized that the technologies at the time were not really ready to, to meet the expectations that, and the dreams that people had at the time. So the hardware had to catch up with the algorithms? It well. wasn't as much as the hardware. It mm -hmm. was really the algorithms at the time were simply not conducive to the type of artificial intelligence that people were aspiring to. I see. Then in 2004, uh, three researchers came up with the idea of uh, putting some very complex neural networks together and they created something called deep learning. Mm. And deep learning showed tremendous success in the area of computer vision, that computers all of a sudden using this technique were able to actually have very good accuracy in, in recognizing uh, figures and people and shapes and objects. Mm. And that really created a massive takeoff if you will, a renaissance in artificial intelligence. And it came with a very interesting timing because these techniques are very demanding in terms of hardware and computing resources. Mm -hmm. And that was really coming at the time where people were inventing new architectures like uh, graphical processing units that were far, far more uh, powerful than before. Mm -hmm. and. They made these algorithms now uh, practical. And these algorithms, while they have some origins in the neural network research that started in the mid-50s, they definitely took things into a completely different level. And they, they also show a lot of complexity in their execution to the point that it is fair to say that people really don't understand why they work or how they work, but we know that they work. Even to today. Uh, there's a lot of people who are doing research on trying to really come up with the mathematical foundations and the theoretical foundations for understanding the success of these methods mm -hmm. and, and how they managed to, to really achieve the success that they had.
the um, success of, of deep learning uh, started actually branching into many other areas. Mm-hmm. And, and now a lot of people see uh, machine learning and deep learning as sort of a, a new way of computing. You don't really need to write complex programs. You could actually have a computer learn mm-hmm. by showing patterns and let the computer actually build a pattern recognition in many ways very similar to what we learn as humans we we are not programmed we are uh, we are pattern recognition devices in many ways far more sophisticated than what exists right now because you know the brain consumes you know 20 watt compared to the kind of computers that we have that consumes you know megawatts computers when they're engaged in machine learning are they actually writing new code for themselves is that what that means it's not exactly how the it's not really they write new code some code writing is necessary on the part of humans but mm-hmm. but what they do is accumulate knowledge based on the patterns that they see they, they start to really try to match what they see into the clusters of patterns that they have and based on these classifications, they can tell you, for example, this object is a circle, this object is a cube. And this is the learning process. What's the, what's the motivation for universities and corporations to sort of um, push this? Because it is obviously highly capital intensive and everything. Well, uh, there are lots of applications that could benefit from this. Obviously, security applications, uh, uh, just anything that has to do with computer vision um, and people are now applying this into a myriad of, of, of techniques to try to see uh, if these mechanisms mm-hmm. can actually reveal patterns that heretofore were not clear to us because of the use of traditional technologies. So um, there are people, for example, that I know on Wall Street that are looking at applying this uh, this technology to uh, trading of equities. Um, I know people who are, uh, for example, at IBM, who mm. are trying to see how these techniques can be used in healthcare, uh, and so on and so forth. I mean, there are lots and lots of applications out there. Yeah. What motivates universities? Well, universities are often experimenting with basic research and trying to really come up with the next big thing. So we see now the marriage of digital and AI uh, into every aspect of science because Mm -hmm. people now are also keen on seeing what AI can help them in the discovery, for example, in material structures, in in solar cells, in uh, optimization in general. Digital is now part and parcels of everything and also cybersecurity is is actually uh, another another area that also interacts with ai by the way mm. in very interesting ways uh, and and robots for example now are 
you know, the main manufacturing labor today is being replaced by robots and the, the traditional factory worker is no longer the big mus muscular type. It's more like a programmer who can actually figure out how to program uh, robots to do specific things. So we see a, a major transformation in, and I'm very excited about the fact that Kaust is now uh, planning to play big in this area. Thank you for speaking with us. You're welcome. Cutting edge tech, science, and startup culture. Science Town. AI is a very broad field, and right. it started long ago in the 50s. So I'm oh, wow. not that much involved with traditional AI. Okay. There's been uh, waves of development since, uh -huh. and the stuff that I work on is much more closely related to a subset of AI, which is called machine learning. That's Peter Rich Tarek. He's a professor of computer science at KAUST. And this is uh, why we have all the buzz in the news these days in particular because of deep learning, which is yet a subset of machine learning. Okay. So I work on uh, algorithms which train machine learning models. The data is fed into some algorithm, and uh, the algorithm would be essentially performing a, a mapping. There's an input and an output. That's a simple way to put it. Mm. So for instance, the input could be an image, and the output would be, is there a dog on the image, or, or what is there on the image. You can have 10,000 classes, I images of cars, people, mm -hmm. dogs, and so on, mm -hmm. and you'd like this mapping to work. Mm -hmm. So you can think of the machine learning algorithm as this black box, which takes the image as an input, and then out comes the result, okay. which is usually very simple for a human to perform, but until recently, uh, computers were just unable to perform this task. What, what leaps led to computers being able to do this? Oh, so there's just many uh, different things. So mm -hmm. one thing would be hardware accelerators, GPUs. Uh, we just have better computers. Mm -hmm. So in the past, we might have had data, not that much as we do have now, but we just didn't have the hardware to, to, uh, to um, accelerate the process to actually uh, use, and, and, and use the data and do something with. Now, another thing is we have also more massive amounts of data. Uh, so that's another thing. Everybody has a cell phone. Everybody's recording all the time. Everybody's interacting with the Internet. All of those interactions are recorded somewhere, drilled for information. So there we, we, have, we have much more data than we used to have. Mm -hmm. and, and there is something in, in it, and we don't know what it is, and the algorithms discovered that. And thirdly, there's advances in the algorithms for training the AI models. So these three would be uh, three most important advances which led to this AI machine learning revolution. You mentioned um, before, which I found very interesting, I, I think most people think that AI is a very recent phenomenon, but you'd mentioned that uh, there was a much longer timeline to it. So give us a little That's history true. lesson on AI. People's, people had a dream of building computers that could think in some form or another and by think I don't really mean 
thing as humans, but that could do some things that humans can do now, and uh, and and it was different, difficult for computers to do for a very long time, almost since since uh, the emergence of the few first computers. So th this thing really started in the 50s, and there were waves of development every decade. Some focus on something new, and and there was even a, a decade in the 90s where people were thinking of neural networks, and they abandoned the idea. And now we have a resurgence of neural networks, and they suddenly are successful. Right now, why is that? So, in in between, uh, in between, some other developments happen in the algorithmic area. We have more data. We have better computers, and so on. So, uh, so it started in the fifties. It progressed through waves of of uh, different development. Uh, later on, uh, super vector machines came in, which is one particular type of model where uh, uh, researchers realized that uh, we can build classifiers. Classifiers are these models which can distinguish between two classes, mm -hmm. binary classifiers uh, of objects, and we can do that in a certain optimal way. So we can create this uh, classifier in such a way that it, it's, uh, it's pushing the data of one class and the other class as away as, as possible uh, from that uh, decision boundary, so that the the prediction would then be much more robust. Right. Uh, so there was excitement about this uh, uh, some time ago, and at the moment, the 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 crazy wave of AI is really due to uh, neural networks. So this really dates back less than a decade, mm -hmm. 2013, 12. So these are the years where we've seen huge progress in in models. Uh, uh, because uh, we could train neural networks, uh, deep enough neural networks back then, just few layers, eight layers, ten layers. Now we have thousands of layers right. of these neural networks. And that's when everybody started abandoning previous models, uh, which were very often handcrafted by uh, thousands of researchers over decades. Right. And now suddenly, some simple model could just throw all of that away, all of that progress away, and, and, and improve on those models by, let's say, 10% or something of that type. Yeah. And then this really shook people to the core, and uh, everybody tried to then jump onto the train and, and figure out why is this happening, what can we do with this. Everybody sensed this was a powerful tool, yeah. and this is really why we have this, this craziness about this right now. But again, this is not going to last forever. We will need new ideas and uh, the field will develop. thing that we're thinking of right now and we've been thinking for the last three years or so is called fed federated learning and this is essentially trying to build machine learning models on mobile devices so now imagine you have uh, data stored locally on mobile devices and users might not always be willing to uh, lose the data to some cloud because it's private information mm -hmm. And yet, they would like to have some AI capability on their phones, which utilizes the power of the data. But this this AI would be stronger 
if it could have a peek into the data of other people's phones, okay? But the other people's phones don't want you to have that peek. So how do you actually do all of this? Right. So now we're rethinking about how to train these machine learning models in such a way that the data never leaves the phones. It turns out, and I'm skipping many steps, this actually leads to an optimization problem of a very particular structure. Mm -hmm. Something is really big about it, and what is big about it is there's just way too many phones. Okay, right. You can have a billion of phones that you want to train this AI on. Yeah. And uh, there are these constraints such as not all phones are online at all times. Right. When they're on battery power, you don't want to be doing any training, right. and so on and so forth. Yeah. They have very different sets of data. Uh, and uh, so how do you do that training? So this, this brings many challenges. Now with one former student of mine who now works at Google and Google collaborators, we actually built such a system. And it is now being used by more than billion Android devices. And, and it's, it's, it's something where companies are starting at the moment in this area trying to utilize this technology mm -hmm. for various applications such as healthcare. Where are we going in the next five or ten years with machine learning in particular? What are we teaching these machines to do? What, what we're achieving is that in many areas where we thought only humans could do some things, now programs will be able to do those things. Uh, one example is exactly this image processing right. uh, example where humans are very good at classifying images, but ten years ago you show an image to a computer and all that it can do with it, it's store it, it can show you the pixels, but it wouldn't know what the content is unless somebody, some human, labeled the image and said, this is an image of a car. Mm -hmm. Now, imagine any uh, job where this kind of a thing is required out of a human. Well, that job will not exist anymore because now the computer can do it. Yeah. And it turns out that we're better and better at doing these things for various other things where we didn't think this was uh, possible. Mm -hmm. So this is where this is going. So it, it's going uh, towards the direction of uh, uh, human-assisted AI. So not completely replacement of people, but you would have maybe a surgeon who would be assisted by AI right. and uh, would maybe be able to do, hopefully, better decisions with that assistance. Of course, there's the danger of uh, being too complacent and simply just relying on those results. And now if something is wrong with the software, everything goes uh, down the hill. So we need the human in the loop. I think similar thing will be happening with self-driving cars. We don't want maybe cars which really are completely unassisted, because there's, there's uh, lots of dangers with this. Uh, uh, because of the way we train the models at the moment, there's some things that could happen in the real world which the AI was not trained for. Mm -hmm. And then it would be very difficult, difficult for the AI to make the right decision. But when you have the human over there, the human can take over and everything will be fine. So it would be much more of an assistance mm -hmm. in certain situations where the AI is really good in, rather than complete replacement. Mm -hmm. This is where I think AI is going to be most useful. So augmenting Aug exactly augmenting our abilities so that we can then maybe spend time more efficiently on other things mm -hmm. as we grab this data and use it in new and novel ways how do we make sure that we also don't uh, you know leave some people behind or or come to false conclusions because we have 
a bit of a distorted data set. That is true, and, yeah. and this could be also studied theoretically. So, so there is a good understanding among those developing uh, a field called statistical learning theory mm -hmm. uh, about uh, having representative data if you want to train the model and have any guarantees. Mm -hmm. And in the real world, you just get the data that you get, and you train the model using that data, hoping that data is representative. If it's not, maybe you get something out of it which, uh, which you don't want. Right. So there, are, there wouldn't be mathematics that would tell you uh, in those circumstances that the model will be this good or that good. Right. The guarantees would be simply lost. Uh, so this is much more about uh, us, uh, the practitioners, collecting data in the right way, trying to randomize as much as possible, getting the data from all different sources, not really focusing on certain subgroups, uh, uh, geographical areas, and so on. Mm. Otherwise, uh, the models will not be very good. So if you have a, mo if, if you have a model for predicting, uh, let's say, whether the given image uh, is a car or not, mm -hmm. and, uh, and you just uh, train it on American cars, never seen any of the cars, it probably wouldn't be as good at right. uh, distinguishing and identifying other types of cars. It might do a good job, and maybe it would be not that good. Right. It would have less accuracy. Could have bad taste in cars, too. <laughs> you said so. <laughs> Uh, indeed. Thank you for talking to us. We appreciate it. My pleasure. You're listening to Science Town. So basically, the, the goal is to keep cost in the map of super, uh, HPC AI, anything that is related to the computing resources. That's Bilal Hadri. He's a computational scientist in the Kaus Supercomputing Lab. Otherwise, our faculty will be outgunned by the other universities, uh, other labs, and so on. Uh, resource computing has been in the DNA of Kaus for the last 10 years. Exactly. So uh, I just read like uh, the article like uh, uh, 10 years ago, Shahin One came at Kaos before the integration of Kaos. So this is the blue gene IBM system. Exactly. So, yeah. and it used to be like in the number fourteen. So it was like kind of in very the world. Yes, it was very innovative technology and so on. And and how much does the HPC community believe that that's actually the top fourteen strongest, or isn't there like some? private computers hidden away in places. Of course, okay. they are what we call, like, especially in the US, uh, what we call a like, classified system. Okay, and so they're not ranked because they don't allow people in this sort of system. Not necessarily. So either they don't want to let know people that they have. Mm. Uh, this is like in some de uh, de defense uh, lab. You have also some company for strategic. They don't say it. I see, okay. Uh, especially like in the uh, energy, oil and gas. Okay. We know them. They but many of them, they don't. And you have a third category that is new. They believe that this ranking is not fair. I see. And they don't like to, sum they don't submit. Uh, so the perfect example is NCSA. Okay. So it's a University of Illinois. Probably that would be in the top three. Okay. So what you see, Shaheen, is like almost 10 times uh, the room is much bigger. No kidding. Yes. And uh, 
And as even after so now, like it's eleven petaflop machine, uh-huh. so it's like kind of one and a half faster than Shaheen. So you have pull and cons. So that'll be disrupted then. Yes. Pretty so it's uh, now it's already obsolete. I will not say obsolete, but uh, uh, for the uh, energy that it consumes. Okay. It's and the ma- the cost of maintenance it costs a lot right. to maintain it, power to replace a spare part that probably most of them are not uh, already available. So that's why like the life of supercomputer is usually between five to six years. Right. Beyond it will be to cost a lot more. It will not be cost effective. So uh, my role is, uh, as a computational scientist is to help researcher and faculty to uh, run efficiently and effectively on chain. So mm-hmm. basically to make sure that code that can ru- uh, that can benefit from running faster, uh, accurately, and basically uh, enabling their research faster. To give you a perspective, we have o- more than 50% of faculty using Shaheen. So uh, we have 76 active faculty using Shaheen. And that's a very high percentage for a university, right? I have never, s- I don't think that there is a one university having like a petascale machine that have so uh, over like 50% of the faculty using mm-hmm. HPC. We are a unique place where most of our users are within like, let's say like one kilometer. Exactly. So um, it's a unique chance, but also it can be challenging because uh, if you don't respond to the email, to the request, they will come to your office directly. <laughs> 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 so you cannot hide b- behind your screen. So. to run without a team mm. uh, it's like a formula one when you see like <laughs> the driver like a hamilton or vettel or they all thank that team and it is the same thing here we have uh, like a, uh, more than 10 people working and we have like several teams we have sys admins who take care of everything that is related to the i would say like the hardware and software yeah along with them behind the scene you have the cray engineer to make sure that the to uh, replace the hardware and to monitor the system. Because with Shaheen the s- is a craze. Yes, system. exactly. Mm. And then you have the computational scientist team mm. who are kind of a liaison between the user and the machine to make sure that they got the performance, all the functionality they need, and the software. If you have a bad team, how bad is it to try to work with a supercomputer? Uh, <laughs> the machine, for example, cannot uh, will not work you have uh, the user will not be happy uh-huh. and at the end they will leave a user if he cannot do his research yeah he will go to somewhere else or he will ask resources outside and for example like as of today they need more tec- um, uh, disruptive technology that we cannot have it today oh i see so okay. sometimes it's not uh, justified or it's only one user out of thousands so they, are, they look and they see partner in the us or in japan and so on so that's why for us it's like a, a customer service Right. have to make sure that they are happy and what they ask can be accommodated mm-hmm. and we'll do our maximum and that's why like even for Shaheen 3 of course are like if you uh, you give us a budget we'll uh, draw the, the machine that we would like but it needs to fit the user needs right otherwise you will not have a, 
uh, your faculty and so on using it. And this is very important. So for example, that's why like Shaheen 2 yeah. is more successful than the first machine. The first machine was quite a little bit disruptive and some of the user's code were not able to run. Hmm. While for this machine, uh, when we procured Shaheen 2, it was for most to be able uh, to run most of the codes. Right. So I give you the example. Before the people of biology and seismic were not running on the Shaheen 1, Blue GNP, while now they are among the top, uh, the top 10 users. That seems like an impossible job to know <laughs> what a researcher is going to need in the next five years. So I buy the machine and kit it out. Like, how do you do that? We, need, do a, we need the AI machine <laughs> to see into the future. <laughs> yeah. So that's why, like, uh, first is we look at what is the technology available. Uh -huh. And uh, we are in constant, uh, I would say, technology uh, awareness on what other labs are doing. And so, of course, for at our level, it's very hard to reinvent the wheel. We are not going to design a new uh, machine and so on. So basically, yeah. we'll see what uh, the other are doing and what fits for cost. <coughs> and we'll be able like to make right. things. So how do you do that? I mean, you can't walk into a Best Buy. No. You can't yes. walk into Extra no, and, no, and no, see that machine. No, 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 Amazon or <laughs> Best Buy. So how do you do that shopping? So uh, we go over, uh, to uh, conferences. Uh -huh. We are aware what are the um, uh, people doing it. So for example, like uh, you have uh, these two big conferences like ISC, where okay. David will be the chair of the conference uh, in 2020. Dr. So ISC, yeah. yes. Mm. It will be in Germany. And the annual uh, conferences supercomputing and of course like uh, through uh, social media through conference uh, like a uh, uh, news you know what's going on right so and so that's what you guys are doing at supercomputing exactly you're nerding out on the latest exactly gear exactly and we have to talk with different vendors right how does one interface with a supercomputer so it's not at all sexy so uh, <laughs> you can have like just a black screen and you see like a, a Jurassic Park or like a, you just like kind of do some so command. It's like, it's like DOS. Exactly. You're exactly. kidding. <laughs> but you can do whatever you want. You have more and more new uh, users yeah. would like something more interactive. And so now we're trying to uh, help this community. Thanks, love. Thanks for coming. Thank you very much. Yeah. Okay, have a good day. Later this month, join us in Denver, Colorado from the floor of SC19 to explore high-performance computing, artificial intelligence, machine learning, and more with some of the world's top experts. And don't forget to subscribe, give us a review, and share Science Town wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you to all of the scientists who took time out to speak with us for this episode. Science Town is produced by Mark Bowes, Alex Aries, and Ryan Yang Yang. I'm Nicholas DeMille with co-host Ben Stevens. Thanks for listening. This podcast is a production of King Abdullah University of Science and Technology, also known as KAUST. You can find us on all major social channels, 
wherever you get your podcasts and at sciencetown.kaust.edu.sa.